You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Episode 26 of the Book of Nature podcast, a podcast hosted by three Christians who work in the sciences and enjoy talking about all things sciencey. To my metaphorical right, we have Todd Pedler, professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Todd, what's new with you? Uh, what is new with me? Well, um, I don't know about you guys, but we are a, a fair bit off from our spring break because our semester started on the 9th of, or the 8th of February. So, um, we got a ways to go, but I feel like it's time for spring break already. <laughs> and not just because it's 50 degrees outside. Um, it is, uh, I'm in the midst of, uh, mid, well, late winter concert week with the, the girls. And so it's like concert here, concert there, concert everywhere. Um, <laughs> we, we have the running joke with, uh, with parents who have kids that are about the same age that we're always sitting relative to one another in the auditorium, exactly in the same place. Um, and you know, we've got a, a little different venue tonight. Tonight's a jazz coffee house, uh, style concert thing, uh, with multiple jazz bands. And one of my daughters is in that. So that'll be kind of a nice thing. Then we got an honor band thing tomorrow. Uh, gosh, and then another one on Monday. It's just, it, it's crazy. It's like six concerts in, in 10 days. So yeah, pretty crazy, but, uh, it's, it's good stuff. So yeah, uh, just, just remember for the jazz concerts that you're supposed to snap your fingers instead of clapping. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And applaud all solos. Of course. So, uh, and to my equally metaphorical left, we have Dan Dawson, Assistant Professor of the Atmospheric Sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, how's it going over there, Dan? Oh, not bad. Just, um, I can't believe that Todd's semester started February 8th, you said? Yep. yep. Uh, ours started January 9th, so about <laughs> a month earlier. And our spring break is coming up uh, not this next week, but the following week. Mm -hmm. I'm also ready for spring break. Yeah, just in the thick of the semester, lots of stuff going on. Um, but otherwise, you know, everything is, seems to be going pretty well. Our various illnesses in our family seem to finally be abating. So um, that's good. <laughs> now if I can just uh, get back into the swing of my research and, and, and writing, that would be great. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, can't really complain. Good. All right. And finally, in between, betwixt, and betwither, I am Charles Hackney, Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the secret headquarters of the World Shadow Government in Karenport, Saskatchewan. Well, and it's since no this appears to be anymore, the uh, just context us. of our, you know, our, our pre-topic chat, uh, <laughs> I guess I'll point out that we're recording on the last day of our spring break. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, the, today's episode topic uh, was suggested by our listener, a.k.a. Silent Bob, 
anyone else who wishes to suggest topics can fi- uh, find us on Facebook or email us at bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. So today we are talking about life and death and time and space and humans and aliens and language and thought as seen in the short story by Ted Chang, The Story of Your Life, uh, which was uh, later adapted into the 2016 film Arrival, starring Amy Adams and directed by uh, Denis Villeneuve. Um, So, listeners, I tried to think about how we might discuss this story without having any spoilers, but uh, it just wasn't happening. So, uh, before we get into this, I'm telling you, listeners... This episode is packed full of spoilers. Big, fat spoilers all over the place. You are at no point any more than 36 inches away from a spoiler. (laughs) There are spoilers living in your walls. So, if you haven't read the story or seen the film yet, turn off the episode right now. Now. I mean it. I think somebody is still still listening. Right now. Come on. Okay, this is brilliant and awesome stuff, and I don't want to ruin anything for you. So turn it off. It's okay. We'll still be here when you come back. Okay, uh, welcome back, and I hope you enjoyed Arrival and Story of Your Life as much as I did. So let's start with the novella that launched this. Uh, Todd, how about you give us a brief rundown of the story? Okay, so there there are so many fascinating things about this that I'm sure we'll talk about in a while over the course of the next hour, so I'll try to keep this plot summary brief. And again, I, I reiterate our warnings. We warned you. Okay. So the story is couched in a framing narrative between a woman uh, named Louise Banks, who is a linguist, and her daughter. Um, One thing that becomes readily apparent right at the outset is that time is treated in a very odd way, which might be off-putting and a challenge to understand at first until until you're well into the story when you begin to understand why the story is told the way it is. I frankly think this is a brilliant device. And and as as I think more and reflect on the story, having read it a few times now, um, I, did, I think it makes the story. I think it's just fascinating. Uh, the opening of the story is Louise seemingly recording a story in some way, or telling it to her daughter or recording it for her daughter to hear uh, the story of your life, hence the title. Uh, and at the opening, she is uh, speaking about the night this daughter was conceived. And at first you read this as sort of a historical present tense, as sometimes authors do, putting the past tense into the present tense as though events have already happened. Your father is about to ask me the question, Louise says. Uh, and that question is going to be, do you want to make a baby? Uh, and which question resurfaces at the very, very end of the story, uh, as it were. But later in that same paragraph, she says, I'd love to tell you the story of this evening, the night you're conceived, but the right time to do that would be when you're ready to have children of your own and will never get that chance. 
So right at the out, at the outset, you're you're saying what? What's going on here? Um, this seems really kind of strange. Uh, perhaps something's going to you know you know something's going to happen to the daughter, um, and soon you do find out uh, a few pages in that the daughter is is going to die at age twenty five. Um, but and this revelation is is the second sort of weird instance that you get. Um, you read this as a future event. Uh, now I am going to. Uh, grab a paragraph here, just to, to give you a feel for for really what's uh, what's said here. So, uh, the request for that meeting was perhaps the second most momentous phone call in my life. The first, of course, will be the one from Mountain Rescue. At that point, your dad and I will be speaking to each other, maybe once a year tops. After I get that phone call, though, the first thing I will do is to call your father. He and I will drive out together to perform the identification, a long, silent car ride. I remember the morgue, all tile and stainless steel, the hum of refrigeration and the smell of antiseptic. An orderly will pull back the sheet to reveal your face. Your face will look wrong somehow, but I know it's you. Yes, that's her, she says. Uh, 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 yes, that's her, I'll say. I will say. She's mine. You'll be 25 then. So you're mixing tenses here. You're doing you're, you're doing something weird with time, which which I again I think is a great device. Um, you got these snippets where Louise is talking to or writing for her daughter in a sense that's future, but as though the events are in the past. Explicitly saying things like, "I remember a conversation we will have when you're in your junior year of high school," interspersed with the main story which is the story of the interaction of human beings with some aliens, which are, are, are known as heptopods for their, their seven limbs. So what about that story? Uh, as the story goes, Louise is one of a pair of a linguist and a physicist who are dedicated to interacting with some interstellar alien beings who have parked several of their spaceships in orbit of the Earth and set up these communication devices that make possible interaction with humanity. There's not a lot said in detail about how they got there or whatnot. They're just thrust into the narrative where Luis has, been, Luis has been drafted into one of, I think, 112 was the number, teams who are engaged in trying to communicate with these aliens. You've got your usual trope of an overbearing military or government presence who are uh, uh, skeptical and trying to make these teams do their work without revealing too much to the aliens. Uh, but since they're pressed to learn how to communicate with them and discern their purpose, the government eventually relents and, 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 and divulges more information to them as needed. Um, much of the story follows Louise and her partner, who's a physicist named Gary Donnelly, trying to make heads or tails of the language of the heptopods, who seem to be like octopi with one too few limbs, I guess. They've got seven eyes arranged in a circle around their bodies so that they look in all directions at once. Their spoken language um, seems to be sort of human-like, although it, me, uh, it sounds nothing at all like a human language because of their physiology. Um, they seem to have names for themselves. They've got substantives and verbs and adverbs and adjectives and the like, but there's great difficulty in communicating with them verbally, so they try written communication uh, also early on. And not only is their written language not a whole lot like their spoken language, but their written language is unlike any other earthly written language in that, as they will discover in time, one basically doesn't have words or paragraphs really or even phrases, but just complete thoughts expressed in some ways all at once in one symbol. Um, ultimately, we learn that this is related to the way that they see the world and conceive of things like physics, which we'll talk about in a little while. 
as they continue, uh, 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 Louise and Gary and, and others, to learn the language, the government minders that they have are getting a little impatient to learn why the heptapods are here. What are their motives? What's their attitude? Are they here for trade? Are they here for, for, for something else? They don't seem to be here for conquest, they say, but, um, but we got to figure out what they're here for. Um, the aliens do seem to be friendly and that they're working patiently to teach their language to, to humans. Uh, but the government representatives are, are, are skeptical of, of there being good under, intentions underneath it all. So as the story continues, we learn that the language of the heptapods reflects something important to, uh, uh, something important uh, in that this, this, this feature of their written language uh, has all of their thoughts expressed at one time. Uh, one makes their symbols in no particular order with respect to the order of thoughts which would be expressed if you were to verbally say these things. And writing the symbol down, you, you basically understand that the heptapods know the entirety of what they're planning to say and produce the symbol all at one time. Um, this is connected uh, to their ability to, to actually see future events. And it turns out that what the heptapods seem to want to give us is the ability to see the future, which gets connected back to the way Louise talks to her daughter and talks about the, 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 the future of her life. Because all of this, as I understand it, is taking place forward-looking. Um, so why do they want to teach us to see the future? Bottom line, they want us to know that they will need our help in the future, and they want to give us time to be able to help them, I presume. But the story, that, well, the story ends. The story ends abruptly, and, and that's a conclusion I draw, but it's not necessarily clear, Right. Uh, the depart the, the the last departure of Raspberry, one of the named heptapods, uh, and the humans. Uh, the humans are left confused, and we get the impression that Louise is sort of left there, stuck with just this purpose of learning their language and study, continuing to study it. Um, but she doesn't even really say, seem to have a total handle on what she needs to do with it. So, Dan, what were you gonna uh, go ahead, I, guys? Um, jump in. Yeah, I was just I'm going to say I think that the the part that where you mentioned like they wanted to give us the ability to see the future mm -hmm. and that they need we're going to need our help. I don't recall that actually being in the story. I think I I, I thought that was a innovation of the of the film itself. Well, and that's where um, I might be that's where I might be interpolating the two things as well. Yeah, I think I think that the story actually doesn't even say that. I think yeah. the story may, basically just leaves it open as what they're there for. Yeah, what I, the aliens are there for. Yeah. They they just give the last gift they give them is something that about how to make a new superconductor, which they already uh, know. The Japanese apparently already had figured out. Yeah, and then they leave. That that that's and yeah, that's right. Yeah, but um, but what I think is interesting about that, um, just you're right. Um, segue into the talking about the film. Mm -hmm. Um, is that um. That's one of the more interesting differences between the film and the book is that there's there's more of a purpose. The purpose of the aliens is revealed in the film, where it's not uh, where it's not so much in the book. You certainly can draw the conclusion that that's what the aliens are there for is to just uh, you know the the whenever they're asked in the book in the book what they're there for it's like oh we're just here to observe right, right. and you can draw the conclusion that they're also there to um, allow the humans to observe them and learn from them. Um, and obviously, if they can see the past, future, and present, then they know <clears throat> what's going to happen, and, and they know that um, what all they're going to learn, but they still have to do it. 
Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. No, and, no, that, that, um, you're, you're, you're right about that. I mean, and I mean, I guess, I guess the only thing that I would say for sure is that they're very intent on them, you know, learning to communicate with them. Yes. And I mean, right. that is the key. That is the key to the whole story, really. Right. Um, and so, so it you do ask makes, why. Yeah. And I guess the, the movie producer answered. And, yeah. And planted I think that in my the, brain. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely latent in the story that that that's one one of the purposes, if not the purpose that they're there. So I kind of like that about the movie, actually. I'm In a way, I'm kind of um, glad I saw the movie first, which is weird. Normally, mm. it's the other way around. But um, I think the movie really puts more context and more meat around the bones of the story that the book um, has mm. or the story. And, uh, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons. Um, mm. <clears throat> So that's one crucial difference um, between the, the the movie and the book. Another is that um, in the in the movie, the military has a much uh, heavier presence. In the book, in the story, I'm just going to call it the book, even though it's a short story. Mm -hmm. In the book, um, the military's there, but they're sort of in the background, and they're just there to sort of make the um, scientists lives a little bit more difficult by asking for th in, you know, impossible things and, and putting all kinds of constraints on, but they're not really threatening in, in any way. They're not threatening the aliens. They don't particularly feel threatened by the aliens for the most part. It's sort of just, they're there to sort of be this, um, I don't know, this, kind of supporting plot element. I, yeah, um, I, would, I think the I, story I could have... Yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, the first interaction is pretty, is kind of hostile, though. Um, oh, sure. Because, you know, he sort of, you know, gives this recording to Louise and says, all right, here, figure it out. You know, and she says, well, you right, know, I can't, right. I can't figure, I obviously ha can't. And he, he said, no, you're, you're not going to get anything else. You're, you're going to, you got this tape, that's all you get. Mm. And, and that's that's actually exactly the way that it happens in the movie too. Right. She just yep. this recording just dumped on her, <laughs> and it's like, oh, do work your super science right. magic and <laughs> figure this out, you know. Yeah. And um, so that's kind of a, a little bit of a, a swipe, so to speak, at sort of the, you know, the clueless, you know, military brass saying, you know, yep. talking with the civilian scientist. That's a trope that you see, in a lot of. Uh, and uh, books of and store and movies of this nature, yep. but uh, um, so the so the military has a much heavier presence, right? And in the movie, um, there's a there's a continue there's escalating tension the entire time. Um, for one thing, in the book, the aliens converse with the humans through these things that they call looking glasses, which turn out to just be these these basically silicate plates that are just sitting there and apparently they can, they look through them and they can see the aliens through there. In the movie, you see these actual craft of some sort, which, you know, look like a sideways Mahjong tile kind of, or, <laughs> or, or whatever they're called. The, they're curved on one side and flat on the other, kind of like, well, um, that's ghost stones are like that, but yeah, but, the, but right, the, ghost these stones. Are that's what I was, yeah, these are that's what I was trying that anybody yeah. who's seen the movie posters is saying, right. Right. Or the new so versions that, of the book. I think that's actually kind of cool. I like that about the movie. There's even though as um, Charles and I were discussing before the, the show, it seems a lot. It actually makes more sense that you would try to put some kind of like communication device instead, of tr especially if there's some kind of atmospheric incompatibility, than sending an entire 
spaceship down and then having your your humans suit up and get in there because they you know and all this other stuff because and uh so yeah it it's the movie sort of puts more barriers in between the humans first meeting with the aliens than the book does in the book they just go walk right up to this and they can see them in the movie they have to put on these suits they got to go through and they get gravity gets all weird and they float up into the uh into the um into the uh, spaceship and then they finally end up in this room in the recesses of the spaceship somewhere where there's this you know big glass side to the uh, one of the walls and then that's when they see shadowy figures and behind it that are the aliens so they really the movie really makes that more spookier more um otherworldly and i think to good effect um i like that about it um but anyway the in the in the movie there's this escalating tension between um the different earth governments and um and the aliens in particular china um the uh, general shang um uh, is uh the chinese leader in the movie who <clears throat> basically gets the impression that the aliens are going to use a weapon against them because of a mistranslation of what gift they want to give the humans which is tra they translated as use weapon where everybody else is translating it as um, give weapon. And so um, they, the, uh, China starts saber rattling and saying, aliens, get out, get out now, um, or we're going to attack. And meanwhile, there's this group of soldiers um, uh, in, the, in, in the United States that goes rogue and plants a bomb on one of the ships that explodes and, um, while the two, protag our two protagonists, the linguist, and um uh dr banks and uh her uh her uh, soon to be uh eventually husband gary donnelly the physicist um are on board they get kicked out because the heptapods know the future they knew it was going to happen yet they were there anyway they they save the two uh characters but um one of the one of the uh heptapods the two heptapods that's in this particular spaceship ends up dying because of the bomb all of this doesn't have, there's no hint of that in the book anywhere this is all additional um stuff that innovation that the movie puts in there and again i i i can see why people might dislike that um because it's just all oh, it's just trying to put more action in there to you know to appeal to a broader audience and it's you know maybe but i kind of like it i kind of like that it's putting um there's essentially two different storylines going on there's the storyline about learning the language and trying to understand what they're there for and then there's this other storyline that's going on where there's the you know your general basic you know that something that you see a lot in these kind of shows is mistrustful humans mis people mistr mistrusting others the alien and just the the tension building up from there, you know, one of those kinds of things where you're just cringing and saying, why are they doing this? Why are they acting like this? You know? Um, and so, but I think those two storylines work pretty well. They work well together. It's like, you feel like it's a race against time to figure out how to communicate, communicate better with them before everything, everything goes, goes south. south. Yeah. So I, before I, I keep rambling, uh, I, I think that's, right. um, another one of the, uh, the, um, improvements, from the uh, from the story to the movie, just sort of uh, you know I, I guess you know coming again from a psychological perspective or just sort of observing the human condition or something like that. Um, I I think 
it's pretty clear uh, if you take a look around at the way humans tend to react that if gigantic flying saucers actually did appear um, in the skies, there is a substantial proportion of the population that would just lose our poop. Oh, sure. Yeah, and actually I think that the military in the, uh, in the movie was far more re restrained um, for most of it than um, I think they actually would be if something like that really happened. So that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, there's also like brief mentions of uh, like apocalyptic cults and mass suicides and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. But, yeah, that's another difference. Um, I mean, there's other, there's other differences. Uh, I think that we hit the, the main ones. Um, oh, yeah, the, the, we meant, as I mentioned back in the, um, when Todd was talking about the book, uh, the, I liked that scene at the very end of the movie or near the end where they, the aliens finally answer why, after why they're there. And it's like, well, we're going to give you this gift of our language so you can see the future. Um, that's our gift to you because you, you can't do that with the way you, your, your, your minds work right now. Um, with our way our minds work in unlocking our language, you can do that, and that's our gift to you. And we're doing that because we're going to need your help in 3,000 years. And then it just leaves it at that. But I kind of like that. I thought that was a cool thing. It's like, yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah. So, I mean, one of the, I guess, you know, we could talk about this whenever, but, um, you know, I, I tend to sometimes get frustrated when things get expanded upon, especially, especially in, something like this, but I, I, it's understandable because it's a 50 page story, you know, and what are you going to do with the 50 page story to turn it into a, a feature length movie? You've mm. got to add, you know, you can't just end it the way that this ends. <laughs> I mean, Oh yeah. The and, story just is like, it just ends and you're like, okay, that, okay. Right. Great. Well, yeah, however, you know, I, I will, I will argue though for the simplicity of a story that leaves you hanging like that, because I, I, I really do mm. like that as a as a as a you know choice for a writer um and so in some ways the tidying up of that and the expansion into this big story that mm. feels an awful lot like contact um hmm. or yeah, other sci-fi movies comparison. you know yeah yeah um where you've got this contact made and then earth freaks out right um right you know i not to say again, not to say that it's bad, but it it just makes this much more of a of a uh, product of the film producer than Ted Chang. I I, um, I totally agree with that for sure. That they, they mm -hmm. definitely took it in direction that that the that I don't think the the like you said Ted Chang was envisioning really. Mm -hmm. But in and I most of the time I would say a good three quarters of the time or more I would com completely agree with you. In the general case, I guess, with that, it's okay to just leave things hanging sometimes, and and innovating on top of a of a book and is risky a lot of times, and often doesn't work in movies. I just think in this particular case, I think it does better uh, than the book in some ways. It actually improves upon the book by by the innovations that it makes mm -hmm. for the most part. And I don't, I don't normally wouldn't normally say that. It, I think this is one of those rare cases where it does, but that's, that's just my opinion. Um, sure. And I do, I do agree that just leaving a storyline hanging can be a very, is, is definitely a choice that an author can use and it can be done to a good effect. Maybe in, 
maybe if I had read the book first, I would think differently. Sure. But in this case, I just didn't feel like I felt that was the weakest part mm. of the book. I thought the the book was really interesting. It explained some stuff that wasn't that the movie didn't go into mm -hmm. about the difference between like the spoken language and the um, and the written language of the. I thought that was really interesting mm -hmm. to read more about that. But then when it just the ending just it felt like it felt to me <laughs> like you just got okay. I, I just done tired of writing, so I'm just going to stop it. <laughs> but that was just my first impression. Maybe if I read it again, I would think differently. So anyway. Hmm. Any opinion on the uh, difference that they made with the uh, the way that the daughter died? Oh gosh, um, yeah. We this is another thing um, Charles and I were discussing mm -hmm. be before the show. Um, in the in the movie, um, the the daughter dies from some terminal illness, and there's a yeah. pretty uh, tear jerking scene in the hospital where um, uh, where the uh, Dr. Banks is re remembering the future of when mm -hmm. this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, she's out there waiting to hear about what's going on with her daughter. And then, and then she just, you know, passes away in the hospital. And I don't remember the exact details of the scene, but it was, mm -hmm. it was pretty, uh, gut wrenching scene. And that was pretty poignant. Um, in the book, it really doesn't, um, have any scene that that actually includes the daughter's death it oh, just, i read i read it that was yeah. it that, that's that's one paragraph that's all yeah all it does is it say yeah. is, is she's remembering the future about how she's going to perish in a rock climbing accident right and that's it yep there's no there's no um other context given to it than that mm -hmm. and so um that's that's an interesting change and charles you were saying something about um some of the um, reviews you were reading were suggesting that that was an odd choice because um, if it was a rock climbing accident, so presumably that would be something that her, her mother could warn her about. Whereas if it's this terminal illness, that's not necessarily an option on the table. Um, well, I don't know what yeah. you thought about that, but uh, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would, would call it an odd change. Uh, okay. what I did find it interesting and we're going to talk about this a little bit later. We're going to get into the whole free will determinism and uh, mm. what does it mean when you know the future and all that sort of stuff. Cause that's a, that's a really big theme in, mm -hmm. uh, both the book and the story. And mm -hmm. yeah, and, uh, until you, the, the, the two of you, uh, mentioned it, I sort of hadn't clued into that part that, <clears throat> uh, yeah, in the story, we don't really see the same anguish, uh, mm -hmm. over the daughter's death. And now that I'm thinking about it and thinking back over uh, having read it, it's almost as if um, knowing the future gave her sort of an uh, kind of a, a detached resignation uh, about it. Yeah, I think that's whereas a good way of looking in the movie she totally feels it. Yep. Mm -hmm. e even yep. knowing that it's going to happen, she totally feels it. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I found interesting was uh, just sort of playing off the two. Op, uh, the, the two deaths, uh, mm -hmm. since what we're, you know, what, what we're, and we're going to end up talking about this later, like I said, is, uh, uh, you know, free will versus determinism. And, you know, do we have a choice and what happens if you know the future and the future is absolute, but you still have a choice in the story? Uh, she dies through an accident that w could have been preventable, but Luis does not change it in the movie. She dies from something that is absolutely outside of anybody's control. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I, I just found that interesting that, 
uh, you know, th these are sort of uh, you know two sides of this issue that uh, the the movie and the book uh, deal with, and we we've, we sort of have you know two different versions of the death, one for each side. Hmm. Uh, and and one of the things I found interesting. So another thing that they leave out, uh, or no, uh, leave out. I should say add in since the story came first. <laughs> An element that is in the movie that is not in the story is why uh, Gary and Luis uh, break up, why they get divorced. Um, yeah. Um, in, the, in the story, we just told that they are. Right. Uh, and we know that uh, by the time uh, the, the daughter, uh, who, uh, here's another thing, she doesn't have a name in the story. Right. She has a name in the in the uh, the movie, uh, Hannah. Uh, so, but by, oh. by the time Hannah in the book is I didn't dead, catch that, do you? Yeah. they've uh, they've both moved on, and they are with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. In the in the movie, we're given a you know not exactly subtle uh, implication that what broke up the marriage was uh, sort of. I don't know if you'd call it a moment of weakness or something like that. Was I mean, especially mm -hmm. since the future is entirely determined. But for whatever reason, mm -hmm. she was in, she was entirely determined to choose to do this. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, she tells her husband about the daughter's death, mm -hmm. uh, about the impending death, and since uh, you know, I mean, yep. I mean, Gary still sees time linearly, uh, and he, emotionally he can't handle it. And the relationship, mm -hmm. uh, and the family falls apart. <coughs> and that is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I th that choice, I think, is really fascinating because it is, you know, as you've already said, it's just matter of fact in in, in the story. So, I mean, that, you know, that is a, a, a an interesting addition, probably a necessary one. Yeah, I agree. I That's one of the, again, one of the things I think was a good add-in that the mm -hmm. movie put so and it, it makes sense in the context of the of the story that somebody might not be able to handle that and sure you know yeah so and I, gary you know gary is not the linguist and he you know consistent with the book uh what is said is he only you know grasps a few words here and there a few phrases that he can use but doesn't really have the extensive knowledge of the language that uh, that Louise does, right? Because he's only caring about like what the what the aliens know about like the laws of physics and things right. like that. Yep. Yeah, according to a, uh, a source that I saw, um, uh, apparently Ted Chang greatly approved of uh, the adaptation. Well, that's good. To yeah. Hear. Yeah. So, so sometimes, sometimes. Uh, Book writers just can't stand their movie adaptations. Right, <laughs> like right. the like right. the Neverending Story is a great example. Uh, <laughs> if you read up on that, like the author of the Neverending Story, the original <laughs> book, just couldn't stand the movie and and oh, okay. and actually fought against it at some point. I think and <laughs> that makes yeah. two of us. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I I saw that movie when I was a kid and I loved it at the time and it has a special. Oh. So anyway, that's going off on a tangent. Okay. So, yeah, right. Yeah, that, that is going off on a tangent because I've seen the I saw the movie when I was a kid. I haven't read the book. I haven't either. Okay. So. 
Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we should just go read it and find out why it was there we such go. a problem. So, so do we need sure. to stop the episode again, readers or listeners? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we'll not. We won't give any more any any spoilers. Okay. About okay. It's a lot older. Sorry. It's a lot older. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, it, I, I, I will just I'll you know one one more little divergence. Another example of that. You mm-hmm. know, um, Stephen King famously hated Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yep. But anyway, huh. so. So, here we go, listeners. You heard it here. Uh, From multiple sources, we have an instance in which the movie adaptation of a piece of literature is an improvement over the piece of literature. The book was not better. I'll just just let that sink in. Is that an ex-cathedra pronouncement, like, the Christian well, I'm not. I'm not in a cathedral at the moment. It's a two so. to one. It's a two to one. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay. It is. It's yes. A, it's not one hundred percent. All right. All right. So yeah. Well, we mentioned uh, our physicist character Gary Donnelly. So I'll uh, uh, toss this one to our physicist character, uh, you know, Todd Pedler. Uh, so in the short story, uh, which you know, another difference is that the story is much more talky. Uh, than the, uh, the, the than the film, uh, so Gary Donnelly expounds on uh, teleological physics. So I'll start off by saying, what? So please, please, sir, can you explain what he's talking about? And remember, you need to explain physics in such a way that a psychologist can understand it. Okay, um, let's do a little vocabulary work first. Teleological, right, from the Greek word telos, or end, purpose, or goal. Uh, teleological physics is referring to the idea that, at least in some instances, physical interactions are dictated by an end purpose, a goal in the future, if you will. Um, the usage of this word is a bit odd. I mean, I had not heard it before. I don't think it has particular currency in physics usage. Um, I could be wrong about that. I didn't Google it. So, listeners, let me know. I'd never heard the words used before in, in the context of, of physics. But the yeah. principle is okay. Dan, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Is like the way they use the teleological in that in that sense just doesn't isn't how I would have thought of of it being applied when I think of t- the word teleological right. next to the word physics. Right. It doesn't it doesn't gel with what how the book describes it. But well, I, thought, I no, I I I, I think at least the can. way I would have. I, uh, I think it can. Let me let me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to. Because I'm trying to balance between the two. Because I, I know it's it's an odd use of words, but I think it makes the point that that Chang wants to make with it. So okay, um, so the sequence in the story involves a time at which there's a major breakthrough that's been made in the communication with the heptapods, and the breakthrough centers around the discussion of the path that light makes when traveling from one medium to another. Um, the story in the version I, I, I um, the version I have actually has a nice diagram. Uh, that illustrates what physicists know as Snell's law, which is the law of relation between angles when light travels from one medium into another and refracts, it bends. Um, in the in that case, re, uh, there's this bending of the light ray, if you want to think about light as a ray, the ray indicating the direction of passage of the light, 
it, it has a kink in it at the interface between the two media. And this has to do with the speed of light in the two different media. Um, if you think about a pencil and a glass of water, if you just look at it, you'll see that the pencil appears to be bent, and it appears to be bent because of this principle of, of refraction, which is a well-known, uh, well, relatively well-understood principle of, of physics. The concept of teleological physics here, then, that would pertain is the derivation of that particular angle, one of the ways, in, at least, in which it's derived under the work of a Frenchman, uh, Pierre de Fermat. Um, which I find interesting now that I think about that, because Fermat is the right pronunciation, but I always learned it as Fermat's principle. Hmm. Um, anyway, who understood light's passage from point A above the interface between two media to point B below in terms of the path which minimizes the amount of time spent going from A to B. Um, for A to B is not a straight line. Uh, and it's not a straight line because the speed of light inside... Um, two different media is, in general, going to be different. So the path that takes the least time must have a kink in it. It's got to go straight in one medium, and as soon as you hit the interface, it's got to kink. The interesting thing here, though, the point that regards teleology, is the question about how does the light know what path to take if it's emitted from some source above the water and ultimately reaches some point below the water? It's got to know where B is, so it takes the right incident angle and take the proper jog to get down to B. But how does it know beforehand? That's the illustration anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, I can, I can make a perfectly sane and sound argument as to why it's not teleological in this sense, because light is a wave. And a wave has longer extent than just, you know, it's not a pencil-like ray that is confined to that space, but it's got wave fronts that are parallel or perpendicular to that ray and so forth. Mm -hmm. And one can make an entirely classical argument uh, with regard to wave theory about why the wave has to bend at the particular angle that it does. But anyway, I get the point. And what's more, that point makes its way into quantum mechanics by way of a principle that's connected to the physicist Richard Feynman and to earlier classical physicists like Lagrange and Hamilton, which is known as the principle of least action. So this is, uh, this is another idea. Action is this quantity that is the difference between the potential and kinetic energies of, of objects. And the path that an object has, that it takes, in general is one that minimizes this quantity called action as you integrate it along the path. So again, though, the question arises, particularly in quantum mechanics, how does the particle know which of many, which really are an infinite number of possible paths to take from A to B, that it has to follow before it leaves? It knows this somehow. It knows what's the minimum action path and just takes it. Again, that's resolvable in quantum mechanics because of the wave, what we call wave-particle duality, where a particle isn't a particle unless you're looking at it. Um, this is a you know, this is a conversation for another time, but it's very very interesting. So, I to, the, to boil this all down, I think this is you know again a, a nice innovation, a sensible one, from the perspective of physics. It makes sense to talk about. Um, this idea of, you know, if I'm a particle and I'm moving from one place to another, how do I know which way to go so that physics is 
uh, you know, the physical principles like the principle of least action are obeyed. I got to know beforehand where I'm going so that I, and all the details about all the possible paths before I take off. Um, this is connected back to the heptapods. I mean, this is, this is, you know, turns out to be really, really important um, in terms of sort of understanding this idea about their communication, including all of sort of future, past, and, 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 and present at once. Um, for uh, the point is made in the, in, in the text, I, 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 I think you can derive this, that for human beings, the way we think is the direction of sort of cause and effect in a temporal sense. And it is something we have to we have to make a leap to understand these very what are called variational principles, like the principle of least action or, or the principle of least time. The heptapods, it is said in the in the book, that they think from those principles. Those are the ones that are fundamental. The principles of vari uh, you know, of variations, and it's a stretch for them to think in terms of cause and effect. Uh, so. Lest I tread on your own territory, Charles, I think I'll leave it at, 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 at this. Okay. Well, then, let's get to my territory. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so turning to uh, a bit of psycholinguistics. Now, uh, according to uh, some internet sources I've read, which you know, I'm sure are in in entirely always reliable and truthful because it's the internet, uh, Ted Chang spent about five years reading up on linguistics in order to get Louise Banks right. Uh, so I've got to give him props for that. Um, writers, do your homework. This is good. Uh, and a major theme in both the story and the film is the connection between language and thought. Uh, in fact, one of the early hurdles in trying to communicate with the heptapods is the possibility that there might not be a common frame of reference for even beginning to learn their language. Um, this, this is not a new idea. In fact, the, the philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, when he was writing on this topic, once uh, famously said, if a lion could speak, we could not understand him. Uh, so he's referring to the idea that, you know, the, the different neural wirings and the different thought processes of non-human species, they're just, you know, simply not connected to ours. Uh, so with the heptapods, you know, we, we don't know if the heptapods might even have concepts like a question, or action, object, or pain, or future. And if they don't, this would create a situation of radical incommensurability between the species, and translation would just be impossible. Now, fortunately uh, for us, because we got to have a story. Uh, there is enough similarity that Dr. Banks is able to translate. Um, you know, in, in the story, we get both the uh, the audio language uh, and also the visual language of the heptapods, and so we're able to have our plot uh, proceed. Uh, so we deal a bit with the, the the idea that thought shapes language. We also see this from the other direction, in, in which language shapes thought. Uh, so as Luis Banks learns the heptapod visual language, uh, it rewires her brain, and she starts to think the way that the heptapods think, uh, non-linearly. So uh, instead of an internal monologue, like uh, most of us have, uh, she finds complex ideas springing into her mind all at once, uh, mentally expressed 
as these swirling heptapodal semigrams. Um, now, this gets explored in the story, and it's a major feature of the story. <coughs> uh, the film uh, is where the term Saper-Whorf hypothesis gets name-dropped. So uh, the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, uh, and you know, ac actual linguists are probably going to yell at me because I am grotesquely oversimplifying and pointing out, uh, you're bringing up ideas that are actually hotly debated. So just putting that putting that there. Um, so uh, the uh, the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, which is uh, it's called uh, linguistic relativity, and there's a stronger version, linguistic determinism. Uh, the idea that a person's thought processes, so you know the way that we think, the way that we process information, uh, are structured in the same way that the person's native language is structured. So, for example. Uh, there is a debate amongst uh, linguists and cognitive scientists uh, regarding uh, the number of color words that a language has and the ability of speakers of these languages to process color differences. Uh, and there's a, a huge literature on that, so I'm only just going to you know, toss in a couple of examples here. So, uh, For example, the, uh, the Nafana language in West Africa has only three color words. Uh, the and Paraha uh, in the Amazon only has two. So this raises the question of uh, how people who grow up speaking these languages uh, cognitively perceive colors. So in fact, I, uh, so I remember lecturing on this material once uh, some years ago. Uh, so talking about this idea that you know uh, there are some languages that only have uh, you know two or three color words and so do they simply lack the concept of, and the, uh, one of my students was just shocked and so she she's her, her jaws on the floor and she raises her hand and in utter sincerity asks me but how do they know how to dress <laughs> yeah that's lovely it is uh, no, <laughs> I, I, I restrained myself from offering a snarky rejoinder. Mm. Just letting, but but it was in there. Just letting you know. <clears throat> so, uh, speaking of the paraha, uh, so but even more amazing than the color language uh, situation, which is something that you know cognitive scientists and linguists had already known about. Um, so the, the the paraha are a they're an isolated tribe. There's only uh, several hundred of them uh, in existence. Uh, the the the, the paraha language includes no abstract numbers, and apparently no past tense. So here we have a people with no history, no genealogy, no creation myth, no stories, no art. They live in the present moment. And researchers have been, you know, visiting these people and studying them and working with them. Uh, and so they they've tried you know what happens if we start trying you know introducing the concept of counting uh, well as far as we can tell anyway um the the native paraha speakers seem incapable of learning how to even count to 10 and it's not that they don't have the brain power it's that um you know we, we a couple of possibilities it could be just that the concept is not getting through uh there's also something that the researchers tend to observe uh, is that um, uh, time that they tried to teach uh, some Paraha speakers how to count to 10, uh, they got bored and left. 
So, which, you know, huh. I guess works for people who, you know, constantly live in the present moment. Um, Makes you wonder if they, like, already know how to count mentally, and they're, they're just like, what are these people trying to teach us hmm. to count to 10? I can count to, like, you know, a million in my head with no problem or something like that. Maybe we're just completely misinterpreting their boredom. But that, yeah, just but, throwing but that, that out is there. the question. <laughs> can they have the concept of these abstract numbers if they don't have the words for the abstract mm. numbers. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, there's there's all kinds of arguments going on and cool stuff going on here. So, you know, connecting back to our story, so uh, for the heptapods uh, and their perception of time, it's kind of like we are the paraha. Uh, so they think non-linearly, past, present, future, all occurring simultaneously, you know, complex thoughts springing into being all at once. And our linear style of thought uh, limits humans' ability to understand. And, you know, it, it does raise the question, would it even be possible for us to think uh, heptapodally? And in the, in the film, it looks like, um, to, to a certain degree anyway, Louise can. Uh, in the story, she describes herself as sort of stuck between worlds, uh, she finds herself sort of, uh, you know, uh, code flipping, it's kind of, you know, like a toggle switch in her brain or something like that. Um, she'll be thinking linearly like a human, and then all of a sudden something will happen and she will perceive her entire time, uh, her life, uh, from birth to her own death, which is another thing that we don't talk about in the story, but anyway, um, as just one big simultaneous thing. So, yeah, um, now, which, and, and so this brings us to, you know, our, our next topic. I'm looking at our, the time here, so we probably should move on. But, but so, yeah, just letting you all know, listeners, there, there's a lot of stuff out there and a lot of debate going on about, uh, connections between, uh, our cognitive neurolog, cognitive, uh, neurological wiring, uh, and, uh, you know, structure of thought. A lot, a lot of good stuff. So let's let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, so Dan, um, a major theme, and this is one that we've talked touched on uh, a few times already. Runs through the story, uh, less so in the film, but it is there. But it's big time in the story. Uh, is free will versus determinism? So as Doctor Banks's brain gets rewired uh, to think heptapodally, she starts to perceive time as they do, uh, and allowing her to remember future events. So what is Ted Chang's take on the implications of this for the question of free will? Um, and what do you remember that your thoughts on the subject will be in the future? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that I'm going to be talking about this right now, actually. Or we'll be talking about it in a minute from now or something. Okay, I'm trying. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so... Basically, to, in a nutshell, um, Ted Chang's take is that, at least in the context of this story, the very fact that the heptapods have this nonlinear perception of time, that they see past, present, and future all as one big block, so to speak, um, is basically, he's arguing that that basically takes away their free will. Um, and I think he actually explicitly states that um, in a couple places in the book. Um, 
at least through um, Dr. Banks, uh, <clears throat> um, through that, through her her musings in the book. Uh, so the idea is that okay, they know what's going to happen. They know what they're going to say and what they're going to do at any given time. And so they don't have any power, so to speak, to change something that they're going to do in the future because to them, it's something that's happening and the same at the same time as something that happened in the past for us or something that's happening in the present for us. It's no different to them. It's all one thing. So there's no, no way that they could alter that, that, that entire um, thing, so to speak, the, the, the entire timeline. Um, to them, it just looks like one big block that, and it's an inalterable. But how he mentioned, how he describes it in the book is that the the question arises then: Why do they even have any language at all? Why talk about anything if you know what's going to happen? You know, and and so on. And his argument is that the 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 heptapods speak. Uh, was it performant? Was what was the phrase he used? Performantly or performatively? Or, Performatively, thank you. Um, instead of uh, whatever the opposite of that is, <laughs> or the the way that we when we when we're talking, a lot of times we're not actually doing anything by talking; we're just talking. Whereas when you're speaking performatively, for performatively, thank you, would be something like you are under arrest. Okay, it doesn't happen until you actually say it. Otherwise, there's no way that the person. Know, I mean. By saying you're under arrest, that makes it so. Or when uh, another example I give in the book is when the there's uh, the priest is giving um, is doing a wedding and he pronounces the the couple husband and wife. It's not so unless he says it. So by saying you're now husband and wife, that makes it so. And that's and basically this is how how the heptapods speak all the time. They only speak in this mode. So by saying they're, whatever they're saying, whenever they're talking they're making stuff happen. And so even though they perceive time nonlinearly and they, they know the past, present, and future, when they're speaking, uh, when they still have to say the things. They still have to speak or write um, in order for the stuff to happen. Um, so it, it, it's essentially they have no free will, but um, it's a, somehow not a problem you know, for them. And uh, I, that's one of the things that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth reading the book was um, Ted Chang says, okay, that's how they perceive things. Um, and Louise is starting to perceive it that way, although she's perceived as sort of as a hybrid where her consciousness still was moving forward in time like any other humans. But, she, but her memory is what's affected by the language that she's learning. So she can remember future events, but she doesn't live in them in the same way that heptopods do. She's not all the way there. Um, but she can remember them. So, which I thought was kind of an interesting way of making a hybrid between the two ways of perceiving these things. But she makes the point in the book that, okay, I now know the future. I'm remembering these future events. Um, I no longer have any free will to do anything about it. Whereas before she learned this ability, um, from her perspective before, or from the vast majority of humans' perspective, where we don't remember the future, we do have the free will. So, and in, in Ted Chang makes it as some a matter of perspective between whether you experience time sequentially or, or as a whole. 
Um, if you experience it as a whole, you don't have free will. If you experience it sequentially, you do, and they're just both two sides of the same coin, both two ways of looking at it. I'll be honest, I had a hard time buying the logic of that. Um, it seems to me like just uh, if it's true that the future is fixed in the sense that we just needed to unlock this ability to be able to remember it, whether or not we know that we actually can see the future is irrelevant to whether it actually exists and it's irrelevant to whether we have the free will to make the choices that we're going to make. Does that make sense? Does he, does he see, I, I guess I didn't get the perspective. I, I didn't get the sense that he said the way you think about it makes reality the way it is. Oh, I, no, I, 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 I gathered I, that it's just if you understand that that's the way the world works, you can be at peace with it. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's more like that, I, I, I guess. But what I mean, the heptapods don't know if they don't have language for this. They don't even know it. They don't even know, you know, they, they don't even they don't even know that maybe there's another way and, and therefore long for it to be a different way. Oh, sure. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think that if you look at the, the some of the monologues in the book um, where she's musing about this, uh, um, yeah. uh, she's uh, basically saying, oh, I know the future now. That means I don't have free will. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit. Okay, sure. I've, I've got um, it but, in front of me. Yeah, go, yeah thanks. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, here's one of the, yeah. key, the key paragraphs. Freedom isn't an illusion. It's perfectly real in the context of sequential consciousness. Within the context of simultaneous consciousness, freedom is not meaningful, but neither is coercion. It's simply a different context, no more or less valid than the other. It's like the famous optical illusion, the drawing of either an elegant young woman, face turned away from the viewer, or a wart-nosed crone, uh, chin tucked down on her chest. There's no correct interpretation. Both are equally valid, but you can't see both at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly what I was um, th uh, thinking of, Charles. So thanks for bring pulling that up. So yeah, I think that's that's basically what he's trying to say is that sure. it's a matter of perspective. So so I so I guess the degree to which you're bothered by that is the degree to which you accept Calvinist principles. If you're a yeah, Calvinist, I think that's see, I think that's as fair. I am, I'm, fi I'm fine with it. I was about to go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, I had here, a feeling. We went. I had a feeling that might come up. But, <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up because uh, but, because the really the, you know in that in, in that framework you really do have free choices, mm. but they're determined, and it's really true. It's really true that you did choose to do this. Yeah, and you know I I I'm not going to like come out and just say oh that's just wrong. I mean I don't know. I mean I think that's one way of <laughs> looking at free choice, I guess when I'm thinking of it, and I don't like the term free will, because I think that will seems to imply that uh, free will seems to imply that I can just will anything to happen, which is obviously not true. We have constraints. So yeah. I like, I like the word choice better, like given a choice between alternatives, we have the ability to choose one or the other. And the, I guess the way I would define free choice in that, in that frame is like, I, if given the choice or given opportunity to do something again in the same way I could have done otherwise. That's how I would um, define free will. And in the Calvinist view, I don't think that that's true. Well, what, what is true is you would never have actually done otherwise. Yeah, but, okay, yeah, so we can go down this rabbit hole with <laughs> it. But, um, 
Uh, no, I, this I understand is your that, fault, Ted Chang. <laughs> I understand. I understand that there's different senses of the of free will that different people will use. There's libertarian free will. There's the compatibilist view, which which is essentially the Calvinist view that um, the future is determined, but we still have free choice. That's compatibilism. And then there's the libertarian free will, um, which is that we what what I just said that um, that I could have done otherwise, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously, we're not going to solve that debate here. Um, <laughs> so it sounds like uh, Ted Chang's a compatibilist. It does. I think that's what I gathered from it. Um, so that's, what's, that's what sits uneasily with me because <laughs> I'm, I, don't, I don't consider myself a compatibilist. Um, I, I tend toward – let me put it this way. I lean toward a, a more of a libertarian view of free will, but – I'm not 100% sold on it either, but... Uh, so I grew up uh, in a, a denominational tradition that emphasized uh, free, free will, free choice. Uh, and then the, uh, the, the first job that I had uh, out of graduate school was uh, teaching at a, a college that was uh, run by Dutch Calvinists. So uh, this issue came up. Culture clash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I remember. I remember uh, one one student. Uh, uh, there had a T-shirt, and I thought this was a brilliant T-shirt. Uh, and um, on on one side of the T-shirt, it said, uh, "I chose this shirt." And then, as the student turns around and walks away, you can see printed on the back of the shirt, uh, "The shirt chose me." <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so. I guess one more thing I, I do want to say about this um, is that I do think there's a distinction between knowing the future and um, and uh, choosing the future, choosing the path that you're going to take. Um, I think it's possible to know what's coming up ahead and still um, be um, have have that choice be free or rather I would say that if we're going to if we bring God into the equation here that God can know the future perfectly but that doesn't mean that he is choosing the choices we make for us he just knows what choice we're going to make I do think that that is a that is a logical distinction that that's valid at, at the very least so um but in this context of this story she's musing uh um Dr. Banks is musing about this and she's knowing her own future, and in, in, in some cases, exactly what she's going to say the, the minute before she says it. Yeah. Um, and she makes this remark that she doesn't feel like she was forced to do it. But that's where I kind of feel kind of like, okay, how and what way does she not feel like she was forced to do it? Um, so I don't know. It's, it's a thorny issue. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the way they uh, portray it in the movie is... I, and I don't recall whether or not this is an actual line, but it's a note that I took, uh, that uh, um, her freedom uh, is in that she chooses to embrace what is to come. But even that, she would presumably be determined whether she would embrace it or not, or, or you can conceive of a, another situation where she wouldn't embrace it. She would fight against it the whole time, but to no avail. So I don't know how that see how but, that but really she, helps. But she doesn't. I mean, the, the, right? But so, but is she, so does she have that, the freedom to choose that though? That's the question. Well, you ultimately do what you most want to do, right? 
I mean, if a gun is held to your head and 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 you are faced with the choice of saying one thing that the person wants you to say or saying another, you ultimately choose what's going to happen. Even well, though yeah. you're even though you're constrained. So I yeah. you know, again, <laughs> yeah. again, we got another, you know, we could we could get a, a battle royal with uh with all the Christian humanist guys together and we'll put this all <laughs> right. <laughs> one giant discussion about this. Okay. We we'd um, also need to uh invite William Lane Craig over to uh weigh in on his um uh philosophical work with God and Time. Oh, the middle way, yes. Right. Yeah, the Molinism, which yeah, uh -huh. if I had to pick a philosophy uh -huh. that I would subscribe to, I think I I like Molinism better oh, than I can't the Atonist. Anyway. Yeah, but that's a that's like you said that's a total other ball of wax. Anyway, it's a very thought at the bottom line. It's very thought provoking the way oh, that he puts this in the book and and in, and like you said to a lesser extent in the movie. Very interesting take on things, um, and it really boils down to what you ontologically think about about the future. Does the future exist the same as the present or the past, or is it not yet existing? And if it does not yet exist, then the heptopods are essentially impossible. And, and um, mm -hmm. uh, they can't, that kind of perception can't exist. Um, now, of course, there's some caveats there. You could, you could talk about being able to predict exactly what's going to happen, even though it's technically not existing yet. So um, that's another, that's a subtle mm -hmm. distinction, which, yeah, we could... I don't want to go into that, but um, yeah. it's, it, I guess the question is, in, uh, the, the thing that um, I think was interesting is that the heptopods not only remember the future, they, they live in the future just as much as they live in the past, the present. There's no distinction. Mm -hmm. um, whereas um, uh, Dr. Banks doesn't, except sometimes, most of the time doesn't live in the future. She still lives in the present. Her consciousness is still there, but she remembers the future. So I guess that's the distinction that you can make is that um, that may be the difference between knowing what the future is going to be, even though it doesn't exist yet, and the future actually existing somewhere out there. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating. Yeah. So, so listeners, I hope that that doesn't completely um, – uh, fry your brain about all this, but certainly fries mine. But it's it's pretty pretty interesting. Well, it's stuff. it's good to get okay, your brain I'll, fried every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Good point. Okay, I uh, think we're going to uh, start heading toward the door at this point. Uh, so Dan, I believe you're up uh, for our next episode. Uh, what were we talking about for uh, our next topic? Star Trek. Yes. That's right. Just Star Trek. <laughs> we will figure out all things Star Trek. All the different series, why Star Trek continues to be perennially, perennially, I can't speak, perennially um, interesting and fascinating and appealing to multiple generations of people. Okay. So come back, listeners, and you will see us weigh in on this. Uh, resistance is futile. You will <laughs> listen to the next episode. You're determined to. No! The next episode already exists out there. Okay. Uh, My okay. heptopod friend over here, he, he told yeah. me. So, uh, yeah, so listeners, I remember that you will listen to the next episode. There we go. And now so do you. All right, then. 
so until then, uh, just a reminder, The Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our Presser liaison is uh, Kristen Philippic. So on behalf of uh, Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler, I'm Charles Hackney, thanking you for join us, joining us for another hour or so of inquiring into the Book of Nature. If you liked the episode, send us an email, bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook uh, and leave a review at iTunes. So look for us next time when we will be discussing Star Trek. And until then, listeners, I leave you with these words of wisdom from Wendell the Manatee. Manatee is a very nuanced yet efficient language. Good day, all. <laughs>